Good morning, Scott Survival Church. <clears throat> my name is Jason Fisher, and uh, many thanks to Fred for bragging about student ministries on my behalf. Uh, I <clears throat> we have some fans over here. We uh, no, I know you're all fans. You need to know, as a just as a church, just how much God is doing in our student ministry, in your student ministry here at Scottsdale Bible Church, God is moving in tremendous ways just to hear testimonies of students coming back from missions trips at baptisms and all sorts of things that have taken place over the last several months. It is so amazing to see what God is doing in their hearts and doing in our midst. And we're looking ahead to a lot of fun things. The back-to-school bash is just one thing for the high school ministry, but fifth and sixth, junior high, high school, college, all sorts of things are going on. And God is, is growing us in breadth and in depth, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing to be a part of. One of the things that we place a high priority on is relationships in student ministries and, and investing into our young people, and we have a, a great group of volunteers who do that, who give their time loving students and, and pouring into them with their time and, and uh, their emotions and all that stuff, and we need more. We need more people who love Jesus and who love young people and so if, if God's stirring in you, even as I'm talking here, maybe you're not serving here yet at the church anywhere, and, and uh, you haven't even considered student ministries, or maybe you've considered it and you've kind of crowded that out of your mind, and I'm here to bring it back and say, you, you need to at least entertain the idea. Uh, go out to the student ministries table during, um, in between services and, and talk to Carol Hubner out there. Uh, she'd love to tell you more about how to serve in student ministries. There is no... Uh, there's no such thing as too old, too young. Uh, you don't have to be cool by anyone's standards. You just have to be yourself. You got to love Jesus and love young people. So that's my shameless plug for the morning. I want to tell you a little bit about my family. My wife and I, we have three kids, two boys and a girl. They're ages 13, 11, and 9. And uh, one of the things that we like to do as a family is play games. I'm not talking about emotional mind games. We, we like to play board games. Uh, that's one of the things we like to do together on a Friday night is we'll sit down and we'll play board games. And we like to all play all sorts of board games, but the specific kinds we like are ones that involve strategy. Uh, maybe you've heard of this game called Settlers of Catan. It's sort of a niche game, but it's, it's a lot of fun. That's one of, it's one of the games we like to play. Another game that my daughter and I like to play is Backgammon. And Backgammon is, is a game of strategy, and, and it's a, it's a two-player game. And it's a lot of fun. It involves a bit of luck because you roll dice, but there's also some strategy involved. And... And so every once in a while, Shelby will want to play backgammon with me. And so uh, we'll go to the closet and get, I'll get out the game. And it's, it's a, a game that I found at a, at a secondhand store. It's the kind that closes and you open it up and it has a brown corduroy on the outside and the little pieces are white and brown. And she's always white and I'm always brown. And we sit down across the table from one another and open the game up. And we begin to mechanically put our pieces in place to face off against one another in the grand game of backgammon. And, and when I sit down like that with my daughter, it occurs to me, I've learned this over, over the years through trial and error, that there's actually two games being played here. There's the little game, the lowercase g game of backgammon. But there's a bigger game, the capital G game that's going on in my relationship with my daughter. Now, if my time with her is just about the game, the small game, the backgammon game, then I'm going to do what I can to crush her for the sake of my own victory. <laughs> but if 
my objective is the big game, the bigger game that's taking place, I'm going to do what I need to do to care for her heart, her emotions, her, her mind. And winning one doesn't necessarily always mean winning the other, does it? I think life is full of, of small games, little, little games that we play. I'm not talking about board games. I mean, you need to know that I use the, the term game loosely for the sake of analogy, but, but it's true. We have these small games that we engage in every day, uh, whether they're business games or leisure games or even religious games that we play. But we have this, this, this bigger game that's going on, a game of relationship. And I think that we're, we're far too content sometimes to win the small games and completely lose sight of the bigger game that's going on. Let's go to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, you're so good to us. Lord, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us. You don't keep us guessing, Lord, about how to know you and how to interact with one another. You've revealed yourself to us through your word. And we, we come to your word thirsty, hungry, ready to receive the spiritual nourishment that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us individually. I pray that you'd open our ears, that you would uh, crowd out, that you'd get rid of any, any sin, any pride, anything that might be blocking, uh, distractions, anything like that, God, and that you would, you would just make that clear, make that passage clear for us so that, so that the truth can infiltrate our minds and then our hearts so that we would be transformed, that we will walk out of here a little more like your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, if you don't mind. Luke chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 25. By this time in the gospel of Luke, Luke has already uh, recounted a lot of things for us including Jesus' ministry. Jesus has already been doing a lot of things. In fact, he's been doing so much that he's been investing in other people and sending them out. In fact, earlier on in this chapter, Jesus has sent out 72 of his disciples to go and do ministry in the outer lying towns. And they've come back and he's received word of, of the ministry that they've done. And, and he's, he's teaching and he's instructing and he's praying out loud to God. And he's talking to his disciples and it's obviously a public setting, a public location as he's talking to his disciples because we are about to read in verse 25 that he interacts with a lawyer. Verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now here's a guy who likes to win. Here's a guy who loves to play the games and loves to win. He has studied the rules. He knows the Old Testament inside and out. That's why Luke, I think, tells us that this guy is a lawyer. He has wisdom. He has knowledge. He knows the Old Testament inside and out. He's probably even memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament, knows exactly how to apply them, knows how the rules apply to the game, and he plays the game well. He's a strategist. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's saying. He's meticulous. He's pointed. And now he's asked Jesus this very specific question. He's a religious man according to his religious system, and he is winning. He's a winner. He even asks a winning question. 
What shall I do to go to heaven, essentially, is what he asks. And that is no insignificant thing to ponder. We need to ponder that question. There's just one problem. The game he thinks he's winning is actually not the one he's playing. He has no idea who he's just squared off with. Can you imagine if he knew that he was squaring off against the the God of the universe, the one who wrote the book that he thinks he's mastered? He has no idea what he's doing. He's the smartest idiot there. (laughs) Nevertheless, the question, it's a good one. It's a great question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he responds to him. He says, what is written in the law? You're an expert. You know the answer to this. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus says, well, what does the rule book say? This thing that you think you've mastered, you tell me, what does it say? And Jesus rightly points him to Scripture. We have to remember, Jesus did not come to do away with Scripture, the Old Testament law and the prophets. No, he even said himself he came to fulfill it. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill the Scripture. In fact, Jesus submitted himself to Old Testament law, and he is the only one in history who is able to live it down to the smallest punctuation mark. Jesus knew the law, and he lived the law, and he points rightly, he points the lawyer back to Scripture. And the lawyer quotes what we know to be the greatest commandment, to love God. He quotes uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Love God and love others. This is, we, this is what we know as the great commandments. What Jesus calls the foundation on which all of, of the law and the prophets depend Love God with all of your human faculties and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That really, it sums it up. The man answers correctly. It's as if he just, he regurgitates it. He's, I mean, he's memorized this from a very, very small child. In fact, he can't even remember a time he didn't know this passage. He answers correctly. He got it right. He aced his bit of Bible trivia and he's moving on to the bonus round. What Jesus, he's so, Jesus is so gentle with this guy. He really, he really wants this guy to understand it, and he's speaking to his heart. He's, he's trying to help this guy see that the rules don't exist so we can simply engage the game. The rules exist to engage the players, God and others. We have to remember that in the life of little games, that those exist to engage the players the bigger game that's going on, not this system of religion. But he still doesn't get it. The lawyer's just so, he's so wrapped up in his self-righteousness. He desiring to justify himself, to prove himself to himself, to the people around him, to Jesus, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's still trying to win the game. He's so focused on following the rules that he's forgotten why they exist in the first place. He's too content to win the small game to see the real one being played out in front of him. And whether he knows it or not, 
He's avoided the word love completely. He's still caught up in this one-upmanship. We have to make sure that we're playing the right game. Are the games you think you're winning the ones that really matter? What kind of games? Well, all sorts of games. And and again, I use this term game loosely. I'm talking about business and leisure, religious games. And some of those, you know, you you can insert kind of what it is for you. And some of those aren't inherently bad. There's nothing, nothing wrong with being a good business person. There's nothing wrong with knowing how to have fun. and There's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do what the Bible says and to please God. But if, if, it, it's, if it's, life is all about those things, if we make the small games the big game, we make it about following the rules, we make it about ourselves and not about loving God and loving others, then we're winning the ones that don't really matter. Real game is one of relationship. And it's all hinged on love. We gotta love God. That great commandment is to love God with all of your human faculties, with all of who you are. And that hasn't changed. We have to remember that, that back then when Jesus was talking to this lawyer, this lawyer was still under the Old Testament law. Jesus hadn't died for him yet. He was going too soon. But, but that law to love God and love others, it really hasn't changed for us, but... but it's been made more complete. It's been made more possible, really, because Jesus has died on the cross for us. We can love God only because he first loved us. We have to remember that, that as we're engaging God in relationship, we cannot earn his love. We cannot earn his good pleasure. We have to realize that the game has already been won. God won, God won when Jesus died on the cross for us and rose again three days later. God came in human form, lived a perfect life, and then he died on the cross for us. And he bridged that gap between between us and God. He reached down with his hand of compassion and love to pick us up out of the muck and the mire of our sin and set us back into a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. God loves you so much that he gave up everything for you. It's already been won. Some of you need to stop trying to win it, to win God's pleasure, to win his love and his grace. Because the truth of the matter is grace is not something that can be earned. It's not something that can be paid back. It just needs to be received. We're so caught up, though, in doing, aren't we? We're good at doing. Just tell me what I need to do. That's what the lawyer says. What do I need to do? And the answer for us in some ways is nothing. It's already been done. God's already done it. Let me correct that a little bit. There is one thing that we need to do. In fact, there's one rule of engagement for us when it comes to receiving God's love and being able to love him in return, and that's surrender. We need to surrender to God's love. Surrender to his love for you. Surrender to his purpose for you the value in which he sees you. You need to surrender to that, to give in, to make Jesus, to allow Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. Stop trying to fight with these small games of religion and trying to impress God. Yes, there is obedience that follows, 
obedient to the word of God as he shows us how to interact with him. But we, we cannot earn God's love. It's already been won. And the truth of the matter is that when we have the love of God in us, when Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, that we're going to have to love others. That's just how it works. That's how the love of God works. We're going to have to love others. The lawyer says to justify himself, and who is my neighbor? Jesus proceeds to tell one of the greatest stories ever told and never answers his question. <laughs> one day, there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. The audience is already riveted. Jesus is telling a suspense story because they know that this path from Jerusalem to Jericho is dangerous. It is steep. It's a, it's a, it's a decent distance. It's narrow, and there are a lot of rocks and caves for robbers to hide. In fact, this, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho is notorious for highway robbery. And this guy, for whatever reason, has dared, for whatever reason, needs to go on his own on this path. And he's traveling, and sure enough, as he's going along, robbers come out. They come out of their hiding place, and they surround him. And they take everything. They take his stuff. They take whatever animal he might have had with him. They take his clothes. They take his dignity because they surround him. They beat him within an inch of his life. And they leave him in the ditch, bleeding, filthy, maimed, naked, and dying. And they take off. What's going to happen to this guy? Is, is anyone going to save him? Is he just going to die there alone with no one to know what's going on? What about his family and all of these things? Things are going through our minds when all of a sudden Jesus tells us that someone comes down the path. Just by chance, a man is walking down the path. And he's a priest. He's a man of God. He is dedicated to doing the Lord's work. He is a holy man. In our terms, he, he might even be a, a senior pastor, maybe even a youth pastor. <laughs> this guy is so holy. <laughs> Surely we have our hero. And he's walking. And he starts, he kind of stops because there's this guy. He's gross and in a ditch. And, and he crosses to the other side and keeps going. It's devastating. So this guy is just going to die here. I mean, surely this guy, that was his only chance was this priest. Well, by chance, another man comes along, a Levite. In our terms, this would be a, a star volunteer. A Levite was a person who assisted the priest. Well, maybe this guy has a little more time on his hands. You know, maybe, maybe the priest was busy with stuff and all that, but this, this, this guy, maybe, maybe he's going to help. And the Levite, just like the priest, is walking along, and he stops, and he he sees the, the guy, and he quickly goes to the other side and passes. What's going to happen to this guy? This is devastating. Unbelievably, a third guy comes along, a Samaritan. Great. A Samaritan. He's going to see the guy and finish him off. Samaritans are half-breed traitors. 
There's no way this guy's going to stop for him. The Samaritan sees him, and Jesus says he's filled with compassion. It's that gut-churning feeling of, of, of sorrow mixed with benevolent love to see a person in need, and he acts. He doesn't cross the street. Jesus says he goes to the man. He goes over to him and he stoops down and he puts his hands on this guy who's bleeding and, and filthy and dying. And, and Jesus says that he takes some wine, he takes some of his own wine that he uses as a, as a disinfectant and then olive oil and begins to cleanse his wounds and, and to put this, this soothing salve of olive oil on him. Takes his time to clean this guy up. Then he helps him up, maybe even picks him up, puts him on his animal, and leads his own animal to an inn. And he puts this guy up for the night, and he stays with him all night. Maybe he's keeping vigil. Maybe he's checking on him every so often to make sure he's okay. And the next morning, he goes to the innkeeper, and he says, here, Here's two days' worth of wages, which would, would have covered about three weeks of this man's stay. He says, I'm going to be back. And when I'm back, if, if there's any more financial obligation, then I'll take care of that as well. And Jesus looks at the lawyer. And he says, which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? The lawyer says, <laughs> the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. See, this isn't a game at all, is it? There are lives at stake. It's something quite outside the realm of rules and religious obligation. This is not about impressing God. This is about loving him by loving others. Just as we've been called to love Jesus through surrender, we're called to love others through sacrifice. This makes complete sense. If God's love for us is sacrificial and working in us and changing us and motivating us, then our love for others ought to be sacrificial as well. Following the example of the Samaritan, we see that sacrificial love sees a need, it meets a need, and there's no strings attached. I know this is a simple observation, but I think it's critical. Love sees a need. Sacrificial love sees needs. Many of us just need to look up from whatever it is we're doing in our day-to-day -day lives and, and look for needs. We need to look for them. Do you have eyes to see the needs of the people around you? The first step is to look up. My wife always harasses me because I never find things like in the pantry and stuff like that. If I'm looking for sugar, uh, and maybe, you know, guys, you can relate. I hope I'm not alone in this. Um, by your wife's chuckles, I can tell that I'm not. But I'll, here's what it is. I'm looking for sugar, for instance, in a little ceramic jar when, in fact, the sugar is in a large clear glass jar. And so in my mind, this is what I'm looking for, and I open it up, and here's the sugar right there, and I'm going, I don't see it because I'm not looking for it. We do that. 
Are you looking for people in need? We're all on this path of life, and it's very easy to become so absorbed in our own journey. We get so wrapped up in our tasks and schedules and priorities that we forget to look up. In the movie Sherlock Holmes, Holmes detects something almost imperceptible to the eye, and Watson asks, how did you see that? And Holmes replies, because I was looking for it. How did the Samaritan know that this man was in need? Well, it was pretty obvious. I mean, if you think about it, and there's, there's no question that this man had needs. I think the same is true. If we were to look up and to look for needs of the people around us, they're going to be pretty obvious. We probably won't have to go looking very far to see needs, small ones, big needs. People's needs are generally pretty obvious. It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out when people are hurting, if we're looking for it. Some of the needs of the people around you, well, they might be physical in nature. Sure, there, there may be times in your life when you come across people who have physical needs, who just need to be cared for, who need some food, uh, who, who need a shower, who need some rest from the sun, a bottle of water. We need to be watching for those needs. Sometimes the needs are financial. People around us who have financial needs. The, sort of the tricky thing with that, though, is that a lot of people with real financial needs hide them. They don't, want, they don't broadcast those. But we, we need to look for them. We need to look for signs. Ask God to reveal some things to us. And, and we need to, as, as followers of Christ, uh, we, we become, well, I'll get to this in a second, but we, we need to get our hands dirty in people's lives. I call it gently invasive. We, we, need, to, we need to be that. We need to, we need to love people by, by digging deeper past the superficial. So maybe, maybe the financial needs that you come across, or maybe it's the person on the side of the road, or, or maybe, maybe it's, um, we're going to have an opportunity later on uh, to, to talk about some financial needs of, of children and their families in Africa. Maybe God wants to tug on your heart there. But these aren't things born out of obligation. These are, these are promptings by the Holy Spirit where we see needs and we want to meet those needs. Usually we're, we're, we're probably never going to find someone in that state that that, that that man was in on the side of the road. But we're certainly going to see spiritual needs. We're gonna, there's spiritual needs all around you. Hopefully there's at least a few people in your life who don't know Jesus. They have a deep spiritual need to be introduced to the one who loves their soul. Maybe there's a person in your life that God is prompting you to begin investing in, to be a mentor, to begin discipling, to care for, to encourage, to speak truth into. You certainly have people in your life with emotional needs. Maybe it's a person at work. someone that you've, you've sort of just kind of let conversation be superficial. You, I mean, you talk about maybe some family stuff. You talk about vacations and all that, but you know there's something else going on. And you just need to, you just need to bring, the, bring up the subject somehow and begin caring for that emotional need. See, I don't, I don't know that we'll ever, we might, but most of us will never ever come across a person who's, who's naked and, and bleeding and dying on the side of the road. But there are a lot of people in our lives who are emotionally bleeding, emotionally dying, spiritually dying. We need to look for them. But looking is only the first step. second step is that we need to meet the need. The Bible says that he went to him. 
Love requires action. The other two losers, they, they did the opposite in action. In fact, it was worse. They crossed the road to the other side. They didn't want to get involved. That may be a common phrase. Well, I don't want to get involved. Have you ever caught yourself thinking that at times? I don't want to get involved. They, in fact, that would be, that would be imposing. I, I don't want to impose. And we begin justifying ourselves like the lawyer. They're probably, they've probably got somebody else. There's, I'm sure there's someone closer to them in their life that can speak better into this situation. I don't want to get involved. If they wanted me to get involved, they would ask for help. They would, they would ask me to get involved. And we go on and on and to the point where, really, honestly, we've just crossed the road, metaphorically speaking, to the other side. But the priest and the Levite, they did get one thing right. To stop would have been costly. It would have been sacrificial. We need to know that about the kind of love that we've been called to. Why didn't they want to get involved? Maybe they were busy. Maybe they had an appointment to keep. Maybe they didn't want to let that person down. And so they sort of rationalize it in their mind. We get, we get so busy with all of our, our things that, that seem very religious. I have to admit to you, a few years ago, um, I was pastor on duty, and, and that means that, that if, if someone comes in from off the street or someone stops by or st- someone calls and they just want to talk to a pastor or they want prayer or they need counseling or financial aid or whatever, I was the person that they were going to come talk to that day. And I have to, I'm embarrassed to admit to you that that morning I thought, I hope I don't get any calls or walk-ins. I've got a lot of stuff i got to do today. <laughs> Every once in a while, the Holy Spirit metaphorically looks me right in the eyes and goes, really? (laughs) That was one of those. Really? You're a pastor. Forget that. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. God loves you. You're walking in the love of God. You've been designed to be that love to other people around you. The same goes for all of us. But it's costly. We're busy people. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they were motivated by fear. They didn't want to get attacked by robbers themselves. Maybe they were judgmental. Well, he probably deserved it. How many times do we meet needs because we've rationalized in our minds that that's a life that they've chosen, that's their problem, they probably deserve it. And any one of these reasons will kill compassion in a heartbeat. The Samaritan acted sacrificially. He gave his stuff He gave of his things. Those weren't inexpensive things either. He gave his things. He gave his emotion. Anytime you get involved in that capacity in a person's life, you become a part of the, you become a part of it. I mean, it started off with emotion. He was filled with compassion. And in compassion, he went to him and he got involved on an emotional level. We need to do that. And yes, there need to be boundaries. Don't hear me wrong on that. I, I, I do need to at least say that we've got to have boundaries in place when it comes to meeting the needs of people around us, but usually that's not the problem. Maybe, um, well, he gave his time as well, and maybe, maybe that's the one that hits the hardest for some of us. Our time, man, what a valuable resource that is, and he gave it. Who knows where he was going? He was probably a businessman. He might have had uh, meetings arranged, that, and, he, and they didn't have cell phones back then. And he just, he decided that this was more important because he, he knew that this life was, 
wasn't about the little games, while those are okay. It's about, the, it's about what's bigger that's going on, about loving God and, and loving others. You've even heard this before. A lot of people spell love T-I-M-E. I think that really goes for all of us. We need to spend time with people if they're going to feel loved. If we're going to meet a need, you're going to have to spend time. And it's going to cost. But the rewards are huge. Love meets, sees a need, love meets a need, and there's no strings attached. The Samaritan, he didn't expect anything in return. He wasn't keeping an account nothing. In fact, he said he would be back to pay more if he needed to. Acts of mercy that are motivated by, by compassion do not require payment or even a pat on the back. God promises us that our rewards are in heaven. And I know for a lot of us, that's hard to wrap our minds around. But it's true. It's a promise. And I think it's hard to wrap our minds around, not because it's some pie-in-the-sky promise, but because it's so cool that we wouldn't even get it if it was explained to us. No strings attached. His motives were out of compassion for his fellow man. God's compassion for you has no strings attached. So should our love for others be. There are times in my life where I've grown too content to win the smaller games of life. Maybe you can relate to that. We succumb to the religion game where knowledge puffs up our ego. We become blind to the needs around us because we're so busy doing the Lord's work. And those times self-righteousness strangles compassion and love has become an obligation and a duty that is not where god wants us so who's my neighbor well jesus says that the question is irrelevant because any person you come in contact with during the course of your day and your life fits that description the real question is are you well are you willing to surrender to jesus and be the good neighbor are you willing to imitate the Samaritan and imitate Christ who shows mercy and compassion and go and do the same? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your grace and your love, your mercy, the compassion that you show us in our lives day in and day out. I know that we take it for granted. Yet, God, you love us so much that you sent your only son for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength through that compassion and love that you show us. I pray that it just would overflow, that it would get to a place where it just is a natural thing. We can't help but love other people. We can't help but, but see people's needs and meet them without any strings attached. I pray, Lord, that you would give us those eyes to see. I pray, Lord, that, that you would show us small needs that we need to meet so that we can work up to the big ones. Lord, thank you again for your mercy and your grace in our lives, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a real special opportunity today. Fred Beasley's already talked about, a little bit about it, but uh, we, we have a, a big project going on in Tanzania, Africa. Uh, we have a lot of missions teams that have gone in the past and are continuing to go, and uh, we want to just inform you and also ask you to be a part of this project. So would you direct your eyes to the screen up here for a video? We've come to Tanzania as a church to really uh, reach out and love the people and care for the needs of these Africans, but most of all, to bring in the gospel. Here in Kandoa, 
The population is 96% Muslim. I see how much faith some of these people have with so little, and it blesses my heart. The scripture tells us that Christ moved towards them to care for them. It says that uh, he taught them about the kingdom of God because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He fed the hungry and he healed the sick. I believe that these children will carry the light of Christ throughout the nation. When we first arrived, these kids were very malnourished and uh, we brought in a group of doctors and we did our first clinic in 2005. We met Naisikari six years ago when the doctors came and did a clinic in the village. Uh, her mother brought her to the clinic every day because her hands had been burned severely. Her fingers had healed together in a fist and she couldn't eat. So her mother would put a pea in the spot between her, her thumb and her finger and have her eat one pea at a time. So obviously she didn't get a lot of food and she was malnourished. But one of the nurses on the visit felt very concerned for the young lady and asked if there was a way to help her. The nurse persisted and decided to sponsor her. Because of that, we were able to include her in the uh, medical program we have. We brought her to Arusha to have her hands operated on. And now she has complete flexibility and use of her hands. And she's just like every other child here in the sponsorship program. But Naisa Kari probably would not be alive today if that nurse in Scottsdale Bible hadn't gotten together with the doctors and paid for the surgery on her hands. Thank you, SBC. morning in Tanzania at the school that Scottsdale Bible built through your contributions beginning in 2005. The first classroom had 30 children and now as you can see the buildings have expanded and so have the number of students. We're up to 500 students in our schools adding 90 new students every year. This is such a wonderful program because it's not only providing Christian education in an area where it's full of animism and no knowledge of Christ it's providing nutrition, it's providing health for children who really had very poor health when we began. We have a huge difference between our school here compared to the public school. We only have 30 children in one classroom. While in the public school, you may find one classroom has more than 100 children in one classroom. But also, uh, our children are learning science in a better way because they have a lot of, of resources. They have a science club. They have Christian teachers. So our children also, they are getting a Christian education. They're taking their tests, their first national test. They scored very high. Uh, which is amazing for a school in its first years of existence. Today, in, this, in our sponsorship program, we have over 700 kids that we're caring for in two villages, one in Myroa, the other in Kandah, here in Tanzania. 
And we are challenged because as of today, we also only have about 520 sponsors. And this project needs you. These kids need you. In order to continue to provide health and education, we need to ask you to consider sponsoring a child. We need 200 more sponsors to continue to move this project forward. Each year, we have to build another classroom. And these classrooms are part of what we can provide through your sponsorship. The reason that we give to missions in general is because of Jesus' command to go into all the world. And the beauty of missions is that we get a chance to be involved in God's work, even in faraway places, and to see what he can do through our labor, our generosity, and our prayers. One of the best things of sponsoring a child at Scottsdale Bible is the uh, wonderful blessing of actually coming and meeting uh, your sponsored child. When I came to Kondoa to look for my sponsor, I saw what looked to be the taller girls, and my eyes immediately went to my sponsor. And I did not know it was her, and I asked, does anybody know Sina? And it was her. And to give her a hug was indescribable. struck me the most about the children is how alive they are in the midst of an environment that we see as just stricken with poverty. Uh, but these kids are kids and, and, and they love people, they love life, they have hope, that their eyes are alive. And it was just an amazing experience to see these kids really just being kids and that we've been able to provide an environment where they can be a kid. And then in the process of that, hear more about Christ, which is happening for the very first time. If you could see the effect that your support has for these children and what a difference it makes in their lives, uh, you would be running to sign up to sponsor a child. Thank you, Scottsdale Bible Church, for sponsoring these children. You are sponsoring the next generation. 